G'day humans, welcome to the safe space for dangerous ideas. The whole thing feels a bit fatuous at the moment. I recorded an hour and ten minutes of a monologue in my steaming hot studio, non-air-conditioned, on a hot Sydney day over the weekend, including video. By the way, we now have video. Did you know that? We have a YouTube channel. Search Josh Sepp's uh, YouTube something, channel, thing, and you'll get videos and increasingly more videos as we ramp up production. But uh, enough about that. And I'm not going to release what I said because I think at this moment we need... Look, I don't know what I want to say here, but I have to say it in order to know what it is, if that makes sense. I have to hear myself talk. And my only aspiration is that I talk in ways that will be comprehensible to people who are fired up about defending Palestine and to those who feel besieged by those who are fired up about defending Palestine. I don't seek to be comprehensible to far-right Zionists in Israel who think that Israel should run from the river to the sea and that it should keep building settlements with impunity in the West Bank and that October 7th only proves that there was never a partner for peace. They're never going to understand my point of view. And people who think that the whole Israeli project is a misbegotten venture from the start And we need a Palestine from the river to the sea. In the literal meaning of that term, and I'm going to come to that term in a moment. They will never appreciate what I'm about to say either. But we're at some kind of a tipping point, folks. I've never in my life felt as keenly as I do right now a preview of a potential dystopia that could come to pass in the 21st century, which until now has been academic for me a dystopia in which we're so governed by algorithms and increasingly sophisticated artificial intelligence and increasingly sophisticated non-state actors who have none of the guardrails of journalists or government institutions and who are able to flood the zone with manipulated and manipulative images and and, uh, non-contextual videos and claims that sort of intersect with the amplification machine of social media and are uh, able to operate in a sphere that has become sort of intellectually free from curiosity and nuance and boisterous pushback and has become actually quite credulous. In other words, what's happened to, I think, especially in universities and in social justice classes and critical theory classes over the past 20 years is that it's become obvious to people, to younger people, that the right thing to do is to be on the right side of history and to support the oppressed, especially if they have brown skin or black skin, especially if they've been historically marginalised. And the obviousness of that doesn't really demand interrogation. So I'm hearing quite a lot from my colleagues in journalism and activism and online Instagrammerism why aren't you speaking out more about Palestine? How can, you, how can you see those images of children being hauled out of rubble, bloodied, dead children? How can you tolerate the corruption of this far-right Israeli government 
the shamelessness with which they're bombarding a defenseless population and not want to use your influence to call for a ceasefire, to call for a free Palestine, to pressure the Australian government or the American government, whatever country you're in, to distance itself from Israel, to call out these war crimes, to stand up in the United Nations and condemn what is an obvious injustice. I mean, I feel the tug of all of those instincts. It's not, you know, newsflash. It it is not a moral revelation to me that killing babies is bad. You know, this is not an enlightening thing that you guys are pointing out to. Oh, really? Oh, we're marching in the street. Palestine will be free from the river to the sea. Bup-be-dup-be-boo. Da-dum-ba-dum-ba-dee. Green eggs and ham. I do not like them. Sam, I am. Let's all rhyme and chant with the flag and we'll hold up a banner and babies are... Killing babies is bad. Oh, great. Okay, this is how we march, is it? We march in lockstep. Do I put my hand up now? What? Who's responsible? The Jews. It just smells a little groupthinky. And I see a future in which there's more and more groupthink, more and more uh, credulous, guileless following of obviously noble causes, inflamed on social media, manipulated by bad actors, and used to really make peace much, much less likely, rather than more likely. It is not obvious to me at all that the soup in which we're currently swimming is conducive to a better life for anybody, including Palestinians. It's not clear to me that a ceasefire right now would be conducive to a better life for Palestinians if it means a return to the status quo ante. A status quo ante which we were constantly being told, may I add, was intolerable. You know, like, we were always being told something had to change, something had to give. Gaza was an open-air prison, the worst place in the world to be alive. And that may have been true, but the moment there's an attack that brings on a reckoning, of course the manner of that reckoning is sufficiently brutal that people would prefer the previous status quo, or maybe they... I don't know what they prefer. Let's let's hear from them, shall we, instead of me opining. <clears throat> a call from to action from Creatives for Palestine. The 13th of December is being nominated in Australia as a day of collective action. And many of my friends and colleagues have signed this petition, creatives all over Australia, calling for a free Palestine. The front page of the petition says, hashtag from the river to to the sea, hashtag always was, always will be, which if you're not in Australia is an indigenous uh, slogan. Uh, implying that Australia always was and always will be uh, Aboriginal land. And the petition reads vastly, we are the artists, producers, front of house staff, audiences and beyond who keep this industry alive. We're here unified in Australia, and Australia's in quotation marks. I like that. That's good, isn't it? You know you're a little bit outside the mainstream when you're putting the name of your country in quotation marks, as if it's in dispute. You know, well, well, some people say Australia exists, but we uh, we beg to differ. We think uh, maybe maybe it doesn't. This so-called nation of Australia. Sorry, I said I was going to speak in ways that would be comprehensible to both sides. And maybe I'm being a little snarky. I apologize. We're here, unified in Australia, 
a colonised country built on the genocide and dispossession of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. We stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people in their struggle for liberation from colonialism, apartheid and ethnic cleansing and call for an immediate ceasefire and an end to occupation. We're calling for collective public actions of solidarity and we're making demands of our government and our arts institutions. Side by side, these First Nations and settler migrants of all generations and ancestries and identities demand, one, an end to the Israeli occupation of Palestine, two, for the Australian government and foreign minister to call for an immediate and permanent ceasefire, three, for our arts institutions to join the call for an immediate and permanent ceasefire, four, for the safety and rights of artists to be honoured wherever they may work. Now, four is interesting, isn't it? For the safety and rights of artists to be honoured wherever they may work. That's, that's code in Australia for the fact that at the opening night of the Sydney Theatre Company's new play, The Seagull, the great Chekhov play, where I was in attendance, uh, three of the actors donned Palestinian scarves at the curtain call. And this caused a big brouhaha. Now, this sort of thing is precisely what I mean by the kind of toxicity and division that we should come to expect in the 21st century, because it should be obvious, it should have been obvious and should continue to be obvious to everybody that symbols in a hostile war environment can mean different things to different people. And to many people, the Palestinian scarf, the Palestinian flag, means Palestinians should have some kind of self-government and they should stop being shat on and they certainly shouldn't be in the situation that they're in. And wherever you may cast the blame, it's intolerable that a people should be required to live in squalid refugee camps in perpetuity simply because of the failures of politics. Like, something has to be done about this at the same time as we honour the Jewish aspiration for self-determination. We have to honour the Palestinian aspiration for self-determination. It can mean something as effectively banal as that, which pretty much everybody agrees with except for the most right-wing assholes in the Israeli government, who unfortunately have been running the place for the past 20 years, but we can get to that in a moment, and, well, most of the Arab world, certainly Hamas, and most of the Arab street. It should be obvious to people who interpret Palestinian iconography and semiotics that way that there's an alternative interpretation and that people whose friends and family members and co-nationalists and co-religionists had their breasts sawed off, played with like a soccer ball, were gang-raped, sometimes with penises and sometimes with knives and sometimes with the butts of guns and who were then further mutilated, dismembered, shot in the head. That flying the flag of the attackers who were also flying that flag could be interpreted, misinterpreted, as condoning those sorts of actions, or at least condoning the outcome of those actions, which is some kind of a reckoning for the same cause under which, the aegis of which those actions were taken. And it could also be perceived 
one should surely be able to have the empathic imagination to conceive of how it could be perceived as a call for the more extreme uh, desires of Palestinian statehood, which really are from the river to the sea. In other words, like we need a Palestine that is for Palestinians, meaning non-Zionists, meaning non-Jews, and that sits on top of what is currently Israel. Sometimes alongside the banner, from the river to the sea, you also see the banner, by any means necessary. Which is a little more ominous, or perhaps just a little more honest. The details of what happens to the Jews who live in that area are rarely remarked upon. When you push people, they say, well, they'll, they'll just have a, a great life. I mean, in this new, in this new state, this new state that unlike all the Arab, all the other Arab and Muslim countries in the world, almost without exception, will not be a theocratic state, will not disrespect the rights of religious and sexual minorities, will not be misogynistic. We will perpetuate the same level of freedom and productivity as exists in Israel, but it'll just be run by completely different people with completely different voters many of whom are the same people who voted for Hamas in Gaza. And don't worry, Jews, it'll be fine. Thank you. Terribly reassuring. It should be understood that there will be alternative ways of perceiving these things. So when the Creatives for Palestine petition says that they're calling, one of the four things they're calling for is for the safety and rights of artists to be honoured wherever they may work, what they mean is the safety and rights of actors to co-opt a curtain call in order to make a political statement which invariably will be regarded as extremely provocative and hostile by some portion of the audience and the wider public and that they should do so without consequence and that the theatre company should not suffer any backlash. The safety and rights of artists to be honoured wherever they may work, one might think, ought also to include the safety and rights of Jewish artists not to feel like they're in an environment where there might be people who are somewhat sympathetic to jihad or to the annihilation of their state in their midst, even if that's a mis misguided interpretation, right? I mean, we're all inside our echo chambers, we're all inside our bubbles. It's very easy for those of us on the left to see that the right are trapped in their own echo chamber. It's very easy for people on, for conservatives to see that the woke are trapped inside an echo chamber. It's much more difficult for the rest of us, especially on the kind of progressive left, to notice our own echo chambers because we want to be passionate about what is righteous and we think that we're fighting for what is good. I mean, who doesn't really, right? I mean, everyone's a good guy in their own eyes. Everyone's the hero of their own story. But it's just worth being aware that regardless of what your intention is, I mean, isn't part of the whole like racial reckoning of the past, I don't know, 10, 15 years to become mindful of the way that things are landing from the perspective of the person who's the recipient of the slight? It's extraordinary to me to see the behavior on social media at the moment from, I've got to say, mostly women in Australia who are influencers who have big, big audiences 
and who spend a lot of time talking about the bloodthirsty, baby-killing Zionists, you know, some of them aren't that sophisticated and they'll say things like, here's, a, here's something on Instagram that I saw, tired of Jews centering their feelings and tone policing Palestinian people. The time for Jewish feelings and fragilities is done. It goes on and on and on and says, I don't give a fuck about the conditions your ancestors grew up in when your family and friends are currently subjugating, torturing, stealing, gaslighting, etc., in order to justify staying in a land that was never theirs. In fact, it's kind of worse to have gone through a genocide and then to take your pent-up rage and anger and power out on another marginalized group who's completely uninvolved in the Holocaust. You all want to act like you're not white, but you're doing doing whiteness the most. Now, that person was foolish enough to use the word Jew, So we can fairly easily at least write off the tone as being anti-Semitic. Everyone else in Australia seems much more clued in. And they use the word Zionist, or I've even seen people call it the IDF, as if they're only critical of the Israeli Defence Forces. But then they'll make a funny Instagram video. One I saw recently was an Australian, I don't know who she is, an Australian comedian. She seems to be popular. Uh, And it was you know, if the IDF was a family member and she comes into her bedroom, she opens the door and there's this person on the bed also played by her. And uh, she at the door says, what are you doing in my room? And the person on the bed says, not your room. It's my room. And the other person says, since when? She goes 3000 years ago in a past life. And she picks her nose. And there ensues like a long convoluted, contorted series of analogies about how, her dogs have Stockholm syndrome and her child is actually hidden behind her dogs because it's being used as a human shield. And she's using the pretext of a human sheet of human sheet of the upside using human shields in order to kill innocent children. At one point she holds up a gun to her kid's head and shoots, I mean, a toy gun and pretends to shoot him. It's all quite, it's all quite nice. It's all quite light. There's a lot of levity, you know, I suppose she thinks she's doing the right thing and making some, some good, and interesting comedic satirical points. But it's all inside this unruffled bubble. And all I want to do today, and I know this is a very long (laughs) preface, I apologize, is edge the bubble open 10% to people on both sides. So a very prominent Australian feminist has taken to using the word Zionist a lot. This one goes out to all the Zionist women who are furious that their bloodlust isn't being supported. I don't care, babes, she says. She goes on and on and on. She says, stop killing Arab women and children. It's so telling that your own whiteness is so deeply wrapped up in your Zionism that not only do you feel outraged at not being centred, but you've also exceptionalised yourselves to somehow pretend you're not white when you are. Okay, so are we talking about Zionists here? Because if we're only talking about people who are literally Zionists, in other words, non-Jews included, people who just believe in the ideology of Jews having a homeland, then there's a perplexing amount of talk about whiteness and about you've exceptionalized yourselves. Jewish exceptionalism is a trope, an ancient anti-Semitic trope. As is, should we add, the use of the word Zionist as a code for Jew hate, right? I mean, <clears throat> the forged document that the Nazis loved, uh, that, you know, uh, 
supposedly proved a global Jewish conspiracy was called the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. It wasn't the Protocols of the Elders of Jews. In common parlance, when we talk about Jewish conspiracy theories, far-right conspiracy theories that the Jews actually control the international system, these are called Zionist conspiracies. They're not called Jewish conspiracies. There's a long history of anti-Semitic conspiracies being coded using the language of Zionism. So I would just say to this prominent feminist, whom I like, whom I have a lot of respect for, or had, I know that you don't think that you're anti-Semitic, but be aware of the language game that you're participating in. There is no way that you would tolerate a man saying to a woman, no, 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 hang on, I'm not being sexist, you're taking this the wrong way, babe. What's the difference here? Jews, in their scores, probably in their thousands, given how many followers these people have, are telling you, this sounds a bit off. The way you're using the term Zionism, the way that we're all talking about Zionism at the moment, does not feel as if you're being careful about saying Palestinians deserve a state and anyone who believes that the Jewish state should occupy the entirety of historical Palestine is a moral monster at the moment, given what's happening in Gaza. That claim, the vast, vast majority of Jews in the world can get on board with. But the claim that Zionist women have a bloodlust and that their own whiteness is so deeply wrapped up in their Zionism that they've exceptionalized themselves to pretend they're not white. If a Jew says to you, that sounds off, where the fuck do you get off saying, no, 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 excuse me, you're taking my words out of context. I didn't say Jew. I, I specifically said Zionist. I never said the word Jew. Right. Is that the rule that you want to apply to all minority claims of prejudice and indignity? Do you want to say that the person of colour doesn't have the right to say that they found something racist? Do we want to go back to a time when the white person got to say, no, stop being so sensitive. I didn't say the N-word or something. I, I was just I was just joking, mate. You can't take a joke. Listen to my words. This is what this is you're making this up. I never said I didn't say that. This is on your this is on you. And if that's not going to become a general rule, then why is it that this one minority obeys different rules than every other minority? Every other minority gets the benefit of the doubt. But this one minority, oh, they're not really a minority. Are they? The Jew, the Jew, sorry, the Zionists. They're not really a minority. I mean, look how well they're doing. Just notice that at every time, in every place, there's always been a reason why the Jews don't count as a real minority. They're either too powerful or they're betrayers. They're sniveling and poor. They're hook-nosed. They're Shylocks. They're greedy. They're not really part of community. They've got this weird exceptionalism thing going on. I mean, she literally says it in that post. You know, look, of course, 
we've come to believe that difference and exceptionalism is something to be celebrated, right? If your difference shows up as a sari or a hijab or a burkini or a boy wearing a dress, fabulous. Let's celebrate difference. But if your difference shows up as you wearing a yarmulke, ugh, it's a bit extra, you know? Can't you just be happy with the fact that you control everything? This is not a good space for us to be swimming in. And unless you have Jewish friends, or unless you indeed have truly Palestinian friends, and by truly Palestinian, I mean unless you can talk to people who are in refugee camps in Lebanon or Jordan, who have a Palestinian identity card and don't have citizenship to those countries, actual Palestinian refugees, then you don't really understand what's going on right now. You're seeing things that are cherry-picked on social media. You're witnessing the calamity of what's going on in Gaza. And you're inside a bubble. It's just worth saying that... I mean, there's so much to say. There's so much to say. To my Jewish friends, I would pull out the old line about anti-Semitism, which is that it's never as it's never as good a situation as it should be, but it's never as bad as you think it is. Because a lot of Jewish people at the moment, and you might find, might find this totally baffling if you are just a generally well-meaning, progressive, pro-Palestinian person, but a lot of Jews at the moment are feeling like this is Kristallnacht. There are 16 million Jews in the world much less than the population of Australia. Hitler managed to get through six. It is a, an extremely vulnerable population that has been hounded out of every society in the history of the world, repeatedly detested, repeatedly pillaged, repeatedly excluded, prevented from joining the professional classes, prevented, prevented from getting elite educations, prevented from joining the elite everywhere. And so has, in a scrappy, self-determined way, made do often by going into finance and the creative arts, which is why Jews are overrepresented in those areas uh, to some extent. And they don't see the Palestinian... I mean, so there's a mistaken narrative, I think, among a lot of Jews and Israelis that I want to acknowledge as being mistaken, which is we were given a state in 1948. Ever since then, we've done nothing but try peace. You know, we were invaded... Three times, 1948, 1967, 1973. In the 1990s, we sought peace. We've sought peace all, all along. We've been consistently slapped back. Uh, and now, through no fault of our own, we are sitting on top of territory that we accidentally acquired when we were invaded in 1967. And no attempt by us to give that back has been met with any reasonable uh, negotiating partner. All of the Arab states have been keen to destroy us until very, very recently when diplomatic uh, overtures by the Israeli government has created some kind of a detente with at least the Arab leaders who want to use Israel as a way of ganging up on Iran. And then we get attacked, and no sooner are we attacked than there are marches in the street, not for the people who were violated in the attack, but 
for the people who are next door to us who committed the attack and those marchers are angry because we're shitty neighbours to them. Like, what the fuck? Obviously, there are lots of problems with that analysis. The largest of which is the fact that for more than 20 years, Israel's been ruled by right-wing shitheads who have got us to this situation. I've been saying for years that there's going to be a reckoning. You can't just you can't continue subjugating people the way that Israel was subjugating the Palestinians without something giving. It was untenable. Like what the fuck did you expect was going to happen? Doesn't justify it, but nobody's blameless here. And on the other side, I would say to the Palestinians, what the fuck did you expect was going to happen? When in 1948 you were given a state by the United Nations alongside Israel, of course, pretty humiliating to be given a state that's only half of the land that you wanted, but hey, as Austin Powers says, I want a toilet made of solid gold. We don't get everything we want. Nonetheless, to respond by having all of the other Arab states instantly invade Israel and try to wipe it off the face of the earth and then lose, what did you think was going to happen when you attacked and lost? In 1967, when you tried to wipe out Israel again and lost, what did you think was going to happen? In 1973, when you tried to wipe out Israel and almost succeeded and then lost, what did you think was going to happen? In the 90s, when there were real legitimate efforts, first by Rabin, then Clinton and the Oslo Accords and Camp David, real efforts for a two-state solution, away from which Arafat just walked without even putting another offer on the table, what did you you think was going to happen? Well, what happened, unfortunately, was that the Israelis concluded that there was no partner for peace and there was no point in it, that they'd been rubes all along. And thanks in part to demographic change and thanks in part to the cynicism of Bibi Netanyahu, who's probably the worst thing that's ever happened to Israel, a corrupt little hack. We found ourselves with more than 20 years of settler acceleration, settler violence, and an obvious disdain for any possibility of Palestinian statehood. But I would say to both sides, what the fuck did you think was going to happen? Anyway, back to this petition. 13th of December, baby. A call to action from Creatives for Palestine. So, on Wednesday, the 13th of December, wear your kefir, your lapel pin, or your Palestinian solidarity shirt to wherever you work. Show up in solidarity at your local gallery, theatre, venue. In trying to figure out whether or not we should support a ceasefire and whether we should support a free Palestine from the river to the sea. I think we need to know what, yeah, what are the potential outcomes? Like, what are the good scenarios here? We have to, we have to create a kind of a context, a climate in which the good is even imaginable because at the moment it's inconceivable. So we'll talk about the good in just a moment. But I first just want to give you a, another sense of what's happening online so that if you're, not particularly online and you don't know where the center of gravity of most mainly young people, but I think the center of gravity of Australians is. Here's a snapshot. After those three actors donned the Palestinian flag, another performer 
was at a gig and said, can you all stop recording? No reporters, no journalists, no cameras. And he just made the point that we're all inside a bubble at the moment and we're not understanding how our words are landing and our symbols are landing for other people. And that his heart goes out to Jewish people at the moment because this was in the immediate aftermath of that national brouhaha about the Palestinian scarves. And as a result, that leaked and he got annihilated on social media. This shit is the least surprising thing in the world. He's always been a slimy liberal. Supporting genocide just seems very on brand. How many dead children do you want to see in Gaza? More than 6,000, not enough for you? Another person. Ah, so this person thinks child killers are acceptable. This is what you support, one person tweets at him with horrendous images. And what you'll slam your peer actors for just so your stupid theatre company can keep touching Zionist donor money. You're a demonic racist who defends and promotes the greatest evil of genocide. I like seeing the images of queers for Palestine. That's good. I've got a queers for Palestine. Uh, The World Action Collective. And there they are. There's a bunch of queers with a Palestinian flag and a rainbow flag. Someone cheeky has put that up against a a picture of a herd of cows in front of a McDonald's with the slogan, cows for McDonald's. Yeah, it's great being a queer in uh, Palestine. They treat you really well. Hamas loves you. Uh, another, another tweet uh, here. America's elite universities, and by the way, I'm not just cherry-picking a random tweet. Okay, I'm not playing the game of like, oh, let's find what the most ridiculous person on Twitter says and dunk on that. These are selected as being emblematic of something that you see all the bloody time if you're on social at the moment, which I encourage you not to be as a general rule, but specifically now. America's elite universities have long been funded by Jews, as everyone well knows, this tweet says. Now that the Jews are finally reaping the whirlwind, we find them squealing like stuck pigs. Oh, the irony. That's another person foolish enough to use the word Jew, but there you go. Um, There's also just a lot of misinformation. I mean, I think it's just worth being aware as you feel increasingly baffled about why more people aren't taking the obviously correct moral position of being outraged at what Israel is doing, that yes, Israel is fucking hammering a place that has endured so much. It's horrendous. I mean, it's awful. It is all the conditions in Gaza are miserable. It's also worth noting that Gaza's leaders live in opulence in places like Doha and siphon off United Nations funds for their own benefit and to pay for rockets to shoot at Israel. So, yeah, I mean, Gaza's a shithole. It's not a shithole in the parts where the people who don't want it to be a shithole live. And it's not a shithole in the palaces in Doha where they reside. And it needn't necessarily be an entire shithole. It's on a beautiful stretch of the Mediterranean. The ocean's right there. Now, Israel has a blockade on it, essentially, making sure that they check what's going in and out of the Israeli border. But there's the Egyptian border through which things can pass. And the Israeli blockade seems somewhat more justified in the wake of October 7th. 
So, yes, there's a whole lot of terrible stuff that's happening there, and I don't know, I can't speak to whether or not the Israelis are going overboard. Obviously, I'm not a supporter of the most extreme human rights abuses of the Israeli Defence Forces. And I've said many, many times that I'm not a supporter of the Israeli occupation of the Palestinian territories at all, and certainly not a supporter of settlements being built, and certainly not a supporter of the right-wing Likud, or of any of these hats who think that Israel should control Palestinian, all Palestinian territory in perpetuity. But a lot of the stuff that you see online is just not true about what's going on in Gaza, and it actually takes a couple of days for journalists to do the sniffing around to debunk something. And as the old saying goes, the, you know, a lie has gone halfway around the world before the truth has had time to get its pants on. You don't actually care about whether or not the things that you saw on social media three days ago turned out not to be true because you feel that the vibe of them is true, the gist of them is true. Who cares about persnickety facts when you know that the underlying morality, the righteousness lies on the side of the dispossessed, the alienated, the brown-skinned, the poor. As for the proportionate use of force in Gaza, I did hear an Israeli say, we considered using proportionate force in Gaza, but our soldiers didn't think that beheading and raping people was appropriate, so we didn't use proportionate force. Ho-ho. So let me just give two examples of where social media has got it completely and utterly wrong just in the past few days. A few days ago, there were images of semi-naked Gazans being rounded up by Israelis in the desert and in a um, an urban environment. And a credible-looking Instagram uh, account called Gaza in English came across my feed uh, with an image of, and it looks horrible, these uh, sort of bound-up... Uh, men wearing nothing but loincloths in the desert with Israeli defense personnel milling around them. And the caption says, a short while ago, the Israeli occupation forces kidnapped more than 100 unarmed Palestinians in front of their children and women from a school for displaced people in the northern Gaza Strip, took them to an open area, executed them in cold blood, one after the other, and threw them into a pit. Among them are children as young as 15 years old. And then I saw this, uh, these similar images again on another, this was being pushed by threads on Instagram. Breaking, the Israeli Zionist militants abducted dozens of Palestinian civilians from UN shelter schools, forced them to take off their clothes and take them to an empty area in preparation for their execution. This is beyond inhumane, it says. And then these images make it to people I actually follow who start reposting it. One of whom posts the comment, oh my fucking God. Over this photo, which now has this caption, a new photo published by an Israeli channel on Telegram shows the occupation forces taking civilians to an empty area in preparation for their execution. Live massacres in front of the world. Oh my fucking God, the person I follow writes. Yeah, oh my fucking God would be right. If it were fucking true, you asshat. I mean, there's no, I'm not saying you need to know on the basis of that. It looks fucking true. It looks horrendous. But it's not true. It took a couple of days, and then the BBC tracked down one of the people. Well, for a start, I mean, the Israelis commented on it almost immediately at a press conference and said, 
There is a Hamas stronghold area of Gaza City, which has been evacuated for two weeks. We went in there to clear it out, and these were the only individuals left there. It's known to be a center of gravity for Hamas. These are all military-age men, and they were the only people there. There were no women and children left because we'd been we'd cleared the place out and we'd letter-dropped it. Um, so we stripped them down and we took their weapons, and now they're being interrogated or handed over to the Red Cross. Um, now, obviously, you can say, well, of course the Israelis would say that. They probably did shoot him and put him in a ditch anyway because this, they're evil Zionists. However, the BBC tracked one of them down. They've got an interview online with this 22-year-old guy. He explains what happened. I don't think the BBC is, like, in the pocket of the Zionists, and if you think that is, then you're probably too far gone. And then the second beat of this act was an even more disturbing thing that I've seen floating around, which is images of these guys, and one of them is giving up his weapons, supposedly, according to the Israelis. There's video footage. He's holding this AK-47 in his hand and he's walking forward from this group of semi-naked uh palestinians and he's dropping he's throwing the weapon down but there's another video of him doing the same thing with the ak-47 in his other hand and the internet's been going bonkers saying this just shows that the whole thing is fucking staged who who brings multiple weapons like so he went back and he did a retake the Israelis are getting him to do a retake. And why does he still have weapons if he's naked? Don't you take the weapons away from the naked person? What, you take his pants, but you don't take his gun? What's going on here? This is like the... This is just Israeli propaganda. Well, i got to say, give the Israelis some credit. I mean, when they do propaganda, they're not so fucking stupid that they do it that way. <clears throat> the BBC again looked into this. The BBC has a project called BBC Verify, where they look, where they try to verify and dig into claims that are being made online. They found the original footage. And yes, the guy brings is, is ordered to bring three weapons. It's a continuous shot. He, It's a weapons handover. I mean, it's stupidly staged. Israel shouldn't bother staging this stuff. It's obviously dumb. To, yeah, you've, exactly. As the people are saying, like, the pe- these people are already semi-naked. Semi Why are you forcing them to bring over their weapons? But according to the, according to the Israelis, it was their weapons. And... They were told to bring those weapons in and they were filmed doing it kind of ham-fisted, kind of stupid, the way governments do things. Governments aren't as savvy as jihadists working the social media game. Um, but the BBC found that it is a continuous shot. It's not they're, not, they're not doing a retake. They're not telling him to take the gun back and now do it in, in the other hand, as so many people who I saw on social media were claiming. They're getting him to bring three AK-47s from one place over to another in to demonstrate that Hamas uh, fighters are being disarmed. All of this is so boring and stupid. Like, who gives a shit what happened when the scale of the catastrophe is so huge? But I'm just trying to give a couple of glimpses of the way that social media functions. Like, journalists and government organizations are not good at playing the social media propaganda game. We're just not. I mean, for a start, we're constrained by facts. So that is an immediate impediment. And it's just worth being aware if you get most of your news from social media. And I'm again, I'm not denying that there are calamities going on in Gaza. I'm just saying in the in the game of whataboutism and moral equivalence, it is striking how much downplaying of the horrors of October 7th there is and how much goosing up the volume on the supposed crimes of the the Israelis there is. 
Like if an alien came down to Earth and did a full accounting of what went on on October 7th, and just as an aside, if you if you think that October 7th was sort of a jailbreak, you know, I mean, what? how could you blame Hamas from trying to shake up the status quo? So they came out, yeah, they killed a few people. That's terrible. They took some hostages, whatever. No. I don't know. I don't even know where to start because it's so horrifying. I feel like I might cry if I recount any of the things that I know went on. But if you doubt it, there's a BBC article uh, that was published on the 5th of December entitled Israel Gaza, Hamas raped and mutilated women on 7 October, BBC hears. It's a long piece and it's interviews with people who were there and the people who were the first responders. And it says, according to the BBC's Middle East correspondent in Jerusalem, Lucy Williamson, that rape was a premeditated strategy on October 7th and the most brutal and horrifying kinds of rape. I mean, you're talking about, you know, this peace music festival, this rave. It's early in the morning. A lot of people are on MDMA, presumably, and they're partying. This is a part of the country which is not right-wing settlers. This is a pretty peacenicky part of the country, southern Israel. It's not like this is being inflicted on, you know, ultra-Zionist Orthodox people who want to take back all of Palestine. These are the kinds of people who would have voted for the Israeli left and for peace processes. But, I mean, not that that makes any difference when you're talking about calamities this bad, but it's just a, a point worth noting that they're effectively morally blameless if you think that there's some immorality in you know, ultra-Zionism that needs to be remedied by Hamas. These people were not that. And there are real stories of, you know, I don't even want to go into the sexual violence, but horrendous mutilation, the likes of which Al-Qaeda never did. This is ISIS-level stuff. If you doubt the BBC, you can also look at The Atlantic, where Graham Wood, who's an excellent journalist, who, isn't, who doesn't carry water for Zionists, uh, went to Israel and witnessed the 43-minute body cam footage of what the terrorists had shot. Uh, and, they, you know, they're proud of it. They're proud of what they're doing. One of them calls home on a dead Jew's phone and... Uh, enthusiastically reports to his parents about how many people he's killed and in, in Israel and what a good boy he is. And unlike the way that any American or Australian or European parent of a military fighter would respond, which is, what the fuck are you talking about? It's, you're saying it's a good thing that you intentionally killed civilians? They just seem concerned for his safety, his welfare. They just want him to get home. And, and I, I, I say this, I understand that the moment we talk about the extraordinary violence and depravity of Hamas and Jihad, a little thought bubble pops up over a lot of people's heads, which is, well, yeah, but what about all the shit that's going down in Gaza? That's no picnic either, right? Like, and yes, of course, you can say, well, the Israelis are, we're trying to avoid civilian casualties. But if you unleash a war on people in which you know that civilians are going to die, then you have blood on your hands. 
And I sort of concur with that moral calculus to some degree. I mean, it's a case that I made during the Iraq war as well, where the, the argument was, we're doing everything we can to avoid civilian casualties. Sure, except you've just made a military decision that you know is reliably going to kill hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. So your hands aren't that clean. The point about ISIS and Al-Qaeda and Hamas that I was trying to make before I got sidetracked by October 7th is just that um, they've gotten pretty good at playing playing the social media game. So, like, think back to the early genesis of ISIS where you had American airmen in orange jumpsuits trapped in cages in the desert and being being set on fire or the beheading of Daniel Pearl, the journalist. You know, the live beheadings. That was an era where uh, jihadists kind of got the memo about how to play that game, and they're very good at ramping up the brutality of either themselves or their opponents, depending on what suits them. Uh, And there has been, you know, considerable connection between the way that Hamas plays the game and the way that ISIS plays the game. So your social media algorithm is not a well-meaning feed. It is amplified by algorithms, as you know, to inflame your sensibilities. And that inflammation is itself being co-opted by forces who want to lead you down as much of a garden path or at least into as much of an echo chamber as they can. Forces like, for example, this uh, post which says, I watched this live stream. This is talking about, this is quoting from uh, someone who was reporting on the live stream, the most barbaric footage you might ever see. There was no torture. There was no killing. The Hamas fighters apologized to the father repeatedly for injuring him and said they wouldn't hurt any of them. It wasn't until the Israeli army arrived that civilians started dying, that person says. So, I mean, how would you know? What world are we creating, man, in which this is going to be the way that most young people get their information about the world? Speaking of young people, a poll in The Economist caught my eye. United States, December 2nd to 5th, 2023. So this is two weeks ago at the time of recording. They polled, this is The Economist, polling Americans on the question of the Holocaust is a myth. 65 plus, effectively 0% agree. 45 to 64-year-olds, almost 0% agree. 30 to 44-year-olds, almost 10% agree that the Holocaust is a myth. 18 to 29-year-olds, 20% agree that the Holocaust is a myth in America. On the question of the Holocaust has been exaggerated, 65 plus, almost zero, 45 to 64, 3 or 4%, 30 to 44, I'm vague here because this is a graph, it's not a, um, I can't read the number, 30 to 44%, almost 10%, 18 to 29 year olds, the Holocaust has been exaggerated, 22, 23%. Almost one in four, more than one in five Americans under the age of 30 think the Holocaust has been exaggerated. Where's that coming from? Is that coming from a studious and thoughtful examination of the facts? Or is it coming from the same place where you get most of your information about Gaza? 
a piece in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, this was posted uh, actually the 12th of December, so just a couple of days ago. A poll of 250 American students showed that the vast majority support the from the river to the sea chant. 53% couldn't name the river and the sea. Some said the Caribbean. More than 10% of these American students polled thought Arafat was Israel's first president. More than 25% hadn't heard of the Oslo Accords. After learning a handful of basic facts about the region, more than 67% said they now reject the chant from the river to the sea. From the river to the sea. It rhymes. It's got that going for it. This call to action from Creatives for Palestine, this petition that's being enacted on the 13th of December, is a little bit confusing to me because the sign-off is whether graceful, justifiably angry, digital or live, it's increasingly clear that to stand for the right for Palestinians to live liberated and safe is not only punishable, but must also be apologised for. The show mustn't go on as usual when people are being massacred. From the river to the sea, always was, always will be. But the first request that they have in their set of demands is an end to the Israeli occupation of Palestine. And then the sign-off is from the river to the sea. And the hashtag at the top is from the river to the sea. But the first demand is an end to the Israeli occupation of Palestine. Aren't those contradictions? An end to the Israeli occupation of Palestine means Israel gets out of the West Bank and Gaza, doesn't it? Or does it mean from the river to the sea? Does it mean an end to Israel because Israel is sitting on Palestine? I mean, Israel is sitting on historical Palestine. And the United States, the western half of the United States, is sitting on top of Mexico. And 100% of Australia is sitting on top of indigenous land. This is how history has unfolded. This is how the world works. I mean, if we're using the word Palestine to now mean everything that exists in what used to be the British mandate of Palestine, like before Israel existed, then this Creatives for Palestine petition is literally genocidal. What happens to the Jews? Where do they go? Joe Biden tells uh, an anecdote about meeting Golda Meir. (laughs) I love the fact that the guy's so old, he's met... Golda Meir, you know, he was back when I was meeting Thomas Edison, he said something to me. Uh, So Golda Meir says to him, don't worry about us. She says, don't worry about us. We'll be fine. We have nowhere else to go. We have nowhere else to go. There are half a billion Arabs in the Middle East. There are 16 million Jews in the world. The West Bank, you may or may not know, was invaded by Jordan when Israel was created in 1948. The West Bank, under the British plan at the end of World War II, 
was supposed to be the main chunk of a new Arab state. It wasn't the Israelis who invaded it to take it over. It was Jordan. And for 20 years, it was a significant part of Jordan. I didn't actually realize how important it was to Jordan until this whole brouhaha made me do a lot more reading into the history of that neck of the woods. But by the mid-60s, the West Bank was almost half of Jordan's population. It was about a third of its GDP. It was more than a third of its agricultural output. The West Bank was about half of Jordan's manpower. 80% of Jordan's fruit-growing land was in the West Bank. 40% of its vegetables were in the West Bank. And still, Israel's per capita product, its uh, GDP per capita, was 10 times more than that of the West Bank. So even when the West Bank was part of Jordan and Israel wasn't touching any Palestinian land apart from what it was, you know, unless we're using the term Palestine to mean Israel, which is a little bit of a fudge. But so let's just call Israel, you know, Israel and Palestine, the Palestinian territories. Before Israel had a finger on any of the territories prior to 1967, it was 10 times wealthier than the West Bank. So the argument that things are shitty in the West Bank and Gaza because Israelis are mean, how were they so shitty there before 1967 when the Israelis were just doing their thing and had no, weren't touching any part of the Palestinian territories. So anyway, Jordan had invaded. You know the rough story, right? The West Bank is part of Jordan. Jordan and the other Arab countries all gather together on the border of Israel in 67. They're about to launch an attack. Israel sees that happening, wipes them out, and in the wipeout is able to steamroll across all of the Arab territories that the Arabs had been offered but had declined in 1948. And yeah, I get it. It wasn't a great deal. Like if you're pro-Palestinian, you're going to say, well, how could they have been expected to take that deal? I mean, they were all living there on that land. They'd been there before. The Nakba was a catastrophe. Yeah. Yeah. History sucks. Like there's a lot of bad shit in history. Okay. My grandmother grew up in a Jewish majority town in Poland that the Nazis raised and all everyone there was sent to Auschwitz, except for her because she got out in 1938. Like, I don't expect any there to be any compensation for that. I don't expect me to have a right of return to that town. The Jews who were elsewhere in the Middle East at the time have no right of return to Syria or Iran or all the other places they were living. In 1948, they were all kicked out. The Arab states were like, oh, you're going to build a state for yourself? Well, fuck you, get out. <laughs> I mean, we talk about Israel being an apartheid state. You hear this all the time, it's an apartheid state. Well, okay, yeah, it's an apartheid state in the sense that it is control. It has a mili- horrendous military occupation that most Israelis don't support and don't know what to do about because they don't feel safe being able to hand it back to the people who just did October 7th and the people who didn't want to respond to their peace overtures in the 1990s and the people who invaded in 73 and the people who invaded in 67 and the people who invaded in 48. So, yeah, there's this pickle and Israelis definitely share some of the blame for the failure of that, especially, as I've said, over the past 20 years when they've been ruled by shitheads. Uh, But an apartheid state? I mean, there's an Arab on the Israeli Supreme Court. There are Arab members of parliament. There are Arab parties in the free democracy of Israeli politics. 20% of Israel are Arabs. And the majority of Israeli Jews are refugees from other parts of the Middle East, like they're from Arabia. The Jews weren't, you know, I think a lot of people have this impression that the Jews parachuted in from Europe after the war and they're all a colonial settler society. The majority of Jews 
in Israel are from the Middle East. And you want to talk about apartheid? How many Jews remain in Iran and Syria and Lebanon and Jordan and Egypt who were there in 1948? I mean, it's as good as zero. These are apartheid states. These are places where to be a Jew in Iran or Syria, even though you had a long history of your family living there prior to 1948, counts for fuck all. I mean, if nothing else, you don't want a right of return because they'll fucking kill you. Something that Israel notably doesn't do to its Arab citizens. It's calamitous and tragic that it does do it to the, to the territories over which it wields a lot of control. I mean, I, I wanted to say occupy, but it doesn't even occupy Gaza anymore. It got out of there and admittedly still contributes to making the place a total shithole through its blockade. But that's what happens when you vote for jihadists as soon as you're released from occupation. So, like, it's complicated. Israel is not a colonizing country like the British Empire was or the Dutch in the East Indies or the Spanish conquistadors. This was, as I've said, a tiny handful of people who'd been shat upon in every society who had kingdoms in that part of the world 3,000 years ago and who'd been driven out, who'd been basically promised the land by the Brits. The Arabs were also promised the land. And remember, nobody had had sovereignty here. I mean, this was a part of the world that had been colonized by everybody going back to the year dot. The Arabs came in the 600s. The Ottomans came in the 1500s. The Palestinians who we want liberation for now, from the 1500s up until when my grandmother was born, were living under Turkish rule from Istanbul. They were either slaves or they were free people being ruled over from another empire. And then the Turks backed the wrong horse in World War I. The Brits said to the Arabs and the Jews of the Middle East in the Ottoman Empire, if you help us drive the the Ottomans, the Turks out, we'll give you a homeland. They kind of played both sides off each other. After World War I, the Ottomans have been driven back. Turkey loses. The Brits win. The Brits kind of control this, they have a rough plan for a bit of Israel. You know, we'll give the Jews the, the bit on the west that's next to the coast. We'll give the Arabs the bit on the east that's next to the river. And uh, everyone will go along their, on their merry ways. World War II comes along. Six million Jews are incinerated. And the Brits say, this is a pretty good opportunity since we're getting out of the empire game in the first place to hand this over to the United Nations, give them this steaming pile of shit. The UN goes, okay, pretty shitty what happened to the Jews. I guess that was the final reckoning, wasn't it? They probably get to, and, you know, since the late 1800s, Jews have been moving back from Europe because they've been the victims of so much discrimination and pogroms and having their villages raised even before Nazism. I mean, it didn't start with Nazism. It started, you know, in the 1800s. So Jews have been getting back, going back to Palestine for a while at this stage. And the ideo- the ideology of Zionism as being like a homeland has been gaining steam, and it finds its fruition after World War II in 1948. And there's a strip for the Jews and a strip for the Arabs. And the Jews take that deal, and the Arabs don't. 
the Arabs invade. Again, perfectly fine if you're a Palestinian to say, why the fuck should we take that deal? We were living here. Yeah, I know. It fucking sucks. But in hindsight, wouldn't it have been better just to take the fucking deal? In hindsight, wouldn't it have been better not to invade in 1967? In hindsight, and this is heresy, wouldn't it maybe even have been better if Israel had never taken back the West Bank? Because the Arab armies had never tried to invade in 67. And Jordan had just sat on the West Bank. And everyone in the West Bank was leading a free life as a Jordanian. Palestinianism as an idea, as an ideology, as a self-identifier, arises in opposition to the creation of the Jewish state. It doesn't exist prior to Israel. It comes as a response to Israel. That doesn't make it illegitimate. It's perfectly legitimate for national self-determination movements to arise as a result of persecution or expropriation of land. But it does mean that, like, Gaza could have been Egypt in an alternative universe, and the West Bank could have been Jordan in an alternative universe, and you wouldn't have had populations that were wildly different. It's not like saying, well, let's just absorb the Jews, you know, I don't know, into Africa or something. Let's just carve out this little place for them. They would have been absorbed. And, of course, that's heartbreaking to anyone who thinks that the aspiration is that they should control all of Palestine or they should have self-determination as a people in opposition to Zionism. But in terms of the reality on the ground for the lived lives of Palestinian people, can you truly argue that it would have been worse for the Palestinians to have taken up any of those shitty offers that the UN and then Israel and the United States put on the table. Because when you fast forward to the 1990s and you get to the Oslo Accords and Camp David and so on, you know, the offers from Israel may have been shitty. They were like 97% of the land that the Palestinians had in the occupied territories. But there were carve-outs, you know, where, oh, well, this bit's close to Israel and settlers are already living there, so, you know, we'll keep this bit and we'll give you this other shitty bit in exchange. Of course there was that sort of stuff. But the thing is, Arafat never came back and said, no, what we want is actually all of Palestine plus, you know, Palestinian territories plus half of Israel. He never even said that. There was no counteroffer. Now, there was a potential offer in 2008 that could have gone somewhere, but, you know, these offers always came about with lame-duck Israeli prime ministers who were at the end of their tenure and had no credibility, and it's not like Arafat and his successors have had credibility in Palestine either. So it's, it's a really tricky situation. And by 2008, maybe it's too late and there's too much bad blood. But the fact remains that the two-state solution is the only path forward. I didn't believe this prior to October 7th. I was a one-stater. I thought there just has to be a way of enshrining the rights of Jews into the constitution of an Israel-Palestine that, that rules over that whole area, and that should be the ultimate aspiration. Now, you can't really have a right of return. I mean, the right of return is a really interesting thing to understand, and I think if you're pro-Palestine 
you have to understand, you have to do the legwork to understand what we mean by from the river to the sea and what we mean by the right of return. Because most of the Palestinians who don't live in the Palestinian territories, well, almost all of them, live in refugee camps in Lebanon and Jordan. I've met these people, I've visited these people. I made a great friend in Beirut, this Palestinian guy. And when he says he's Palestinian, what he means is that Lebanon won't give him citizenship or any pathway to citizenship. The Arab countries regard these people as stateless refugees, even though, get this, it's not like he has fled settler violence in the West Bank six months ago. His his ancestors left their town in what is now Israel in 1948, all pushed out. You know, I'm not going to litigate how uh, traumatizing the experience of the creation of Israel was for the Palestinians who were living there. I'm sure it was horrible. So they, for whatever reason, under whatever circumstances, they're out. And they moved to Lebanon. But Lebanon doesn't regard them as it being Lebanese. But they have kids in the 50s who have kids in the 70s, who have kids in the 90s, one of whom is this guy. And when you ask him where he's from, he doesn't say Lebanon. Lebanon has no purchase with him. He's Palestinian. He's never been to Israel. He's never been to this mythical town of his imagination that his great-grandparents fled. But his right to return there and to return with the scores and scores and scores of descendants that the one person who left has now had is an indisputable part of the Palestinian identity. You know, unlike almost every other diaspora where you just get used to the new place, like, I mean, my grandmother, okay, I, you know, I have presumably some right of return to go back to Poland and to track down what house she grew up in. But that's immaterial to me because I have a life in a new home country. That's the way the refugee system tends to work. And because, that has, because that's been stymied and because Palestinians have been so screwed over by not just Israel, but by Lebanon and Jordan and Syria and Arab leaders and the, Arab, the rest of the Arab street in the region, not to mention Hamas and jihadists, because they've been so screwed over, they haven't been able to build new routes in new places. But even saying that that is an aspiration that we should have for, the, for, Palest- for individual Palestinians marks you amongst most of polite society as being a rabidly right-wing Zionist fascist asshole. Because why shouldn't they have their land from the river to the sea? Why shouldn't they go back? Why should they have, have to endure the indignity of going somewhere else? You settler colonial Zionist always will, always will be Aboriginal land, always will be Palestinian land, always was, always will be from the river to the sea. What are you saying? What are you saying? What are you advocating for? When you say that the number one demand of the call to action from Creative Palestine is an end to the Israeli occupation of Palestine, do you mean that Israel should get out of the West Bank and Gaza, or do you mean that the whole thing is Palestine and Israel has to cease existing? Because that's what's implied by the sign-off to the petition, which says, from the river to the sea, always was, always will be. 
This is not a way of thinking about the, the, the ways in which nations bump up against each other and people get dispossessed and people try to find self-determination that we apply to any other situation. We don't expect non-Indigenous Australians to grant the right of return to Indigenous Australians, you know, from the sea to the sea. We don't expect that of Americans. As I've said before, is it just a matter of time? Is it do the Israelis just have to wait as long as the Australians and the Americans have waited so that if a couple of hundred years goes by, we regard it as being kosher? Pardon the pun. Like... I don't think we understand, if we're supporting Palestine in the West, what we're actually supporting. We're not supporting the betterment of Palestinian lives, because there are all kinds of things you could do to improve Palestinians' lives that are regarded as inimical to the quest for Palestinian self-government and Palestinian independence and autonomy, because they help Palestinians you know, get out of the shithole that they're in. And there's actually a desire amongst pro-Palestinian activists and aid organizations and Arab leaders to keep the Palestinian suffering alive. So there has to be a final reckoning about Zionism. There's a subtext here that you're not seeing if you think this is just about dead babies being pulled from the Gazan rubble. So what do I mean there are things that we could be doing? Well, I'm, I owe a debt of gratitude to Matt Iglesias, the American blogger and thinker, for pointing this out to me. But of course, there are a whole bunch of things that we could have been doing short of expecting the impossible of Israel, which is to annihilate itself, prior to October 7th, that would have helped Palestinians, that people who speak on behalf of Palestinians don't want to happen. For example... Open the border with Egypt and let people who pass a background check and who aren't militants come across the border and live in Egypt if they want to. That is regarded as not being conducive to the Palestinian cause, even though it would vastly improve the lives of the people who who had been living in the squalid shithole that was Gaza. Here's another one. The Gulf states like Qatar and the United Arab Emirates have a need for tons of foreign workers. They give bazillions of worker visas, they ship people in, mostly from Bangladesh, Pakistan, India, and Africa. They could just flick a switch and say, instead of prioritizing those workers, we're going to prioritize Palestinians. They can leave Palestine. They can come and live in the UAE or Qatar. They can work for us. They can stay on whatever, however long they want, five years, 10 years, make a ton of money by Palestinian standards, send it back home, improve their lives that would be regarded as a cop-out by the people who claim to speak on behalf of Palestinians. It's a way of, oh, you know, making Palestine a more distant dream. It's a band-aid. Well, everything's a fucking band-aid in the long run. You know, I mean, you could criticise the resettlement of any refugees on that basis. You could say that Australia taking my father in out of the ruins of World War II, in some way sort of validated what the Nazis were trying to do. They were trying to drive the Jews out of Europe. Oh, well, are they, we going to let them succeed in that mission by taking in Josh's father? Isn't that just pandering to what the Nazis wanted? Yeah. Yeah, it is a bit. It also gave me a better life. You know, if you talk about resettling people from Ukraine into other NATO states, You could argue that that achieves Putin's goal. Putin is trying to Russify eastern Ukraine. You take the 
the ethnic Ukrainians out of the east of Ukraine, you're doing Putin's job for him. Yeah, okay, fine. But you're also resettling refugees. You know, so the other thing that could be done is that Lebanon and Jordan and places where a lot of Palestinian refugees live could give them some pathway to citizenship. Like this bloke who I met in Beirut, he can't become a Lebanese citizen. It's ridiculous. It's barbaric. And if this is a problem of resources, if this is a problem of, well, why should Lebanon have to import all of these refugees and have them competing for jobs, for example, with their locals, well, compensate everyone with cash. Let it rain money. We claim to care about this so much. You're all marching in the streets, holding up the banners from the river to the sea. Killing babies is bad. Opening our eyes to such profound moral insights. Open your pocketbook. The Gulf states certainly can. You know, the weird thing about the Palestinian issue is at the same, on, on the one hand, you have complete apathy towards the lives of actual Palestinians. And it's not just from the Israelis, it's from everyone. They're getting fucked left, right, and center. The Lebanese aren't giving them citizenship. Like, why can't they just, you know, again, I sound like a right wing Zionist asshole saying, why can't they just get, Pal- get Le- Lebanese passports, Jordanian passports? And set up a life there. Like, that is a position that is so right-wing that even even left-wing Israelis blush at the mention of it. But I don't see what's wrong with it. I don't see what is less preferable about that than about the status quo. I understand why it's less preferable than the imaginary castle that you've built in your brain about how there can be a, a peaceful Palestine from the river to the sea where Jews and Palestinians live in harmony and Arabs don't hate Jews and there's no anti-Semitism in the Middle East and there are no right-wing Zionists and the rivers flow with milk and honey and the lion sleeps with the lamb and the postman hugs the Saint Bernard. But like in comparison to what we've got, the idea of allowing Palestinians to live and work in Egypt, to get citizenship in Lebanon if they've been living there and their parents were born there and their grandparents were born there, and, and encouraging them to have work visas in Gulf states and using the money that we say we're committed to, like pl- t- plugging our, our heartstrings in such a way that we can compensate these countries for dealing with Palestinians to improve their lives right now. That is perceived as being incredibly hostile to the Palestinian cause. The Palestinian cause as it is constructed in the minds of Western aid organizations, human rights groups, Arab dictators, and the Arab street, means Palestinians need to be dispossessed and completely fucked over, and they're in Palestine. They have to stay in the Palestinian territories, and they have to suffer as much as possible to put pressure on the global community, to put pressure on Israel, to find a final solution and a lasting peace. Now, what the median Jew in the world wants is a lasting peace and a two-state solution. It's hard to to follow polling too reliably in the Arab world, but the polls are so off the charts that it's hard to disbelieve them that the median Arab does not want a two-state solution. They just don't think that the Jews should have a homeland in that part of the world. So if you're out there chanting from the river to the sea... 
you're, the implication is that you believe in a right of return, not just for Palestinians to have control over the Palestinian territories, which I agree with, which the majority of Jews agree with, which Israeli successive Israeli governments agreed with up until the past 20 years of disillusionment and right-wing takeover, which has got us to this calamitous place. And I lay the blood of Israelis and Gazans at the feet of successive right-wing Israeli governments just as much as at the feet of jihadists. So don't mistake me for being an apologist for right-wing Israeli Zionism here. But understand what the context in which you're having this conversation and in which you're making these calls. There is a just a, a misguided disjoint here where the Jews of the world really do feel like there was a like they're seeing for the first time that there must have been a kind of, if not Jew hate, Jew distaste simmering under the surface of the people who they thought were their friends and colleagues in order for it to be so easily unleashed in such a partisan and unsubtle way, like unnuanced way, in this firestorm of compassion towards what people say is Palestine, but what is very close to either, at best, sympathy for the calamity on October 7th that brought this reckoning about, or at worst, the idea that there should be a single Palestinian state from the river to the sea, which is going to be majority Arab. That area is already 50-50 Arab and Jew, if you take the whole thing, Israel and the Palestinian territories. And if you have some kind of right of return, which all Palestinian activists say is fundamental, then, yeah, you've got my Lebanese mate coming in from Beirut as well, swelling the numbers, and Arabs have more babies than Jews. So, you know, if, if not already, then very, very soon, Jews are a minority. And they're a minority in an Arab state that's going to look like what exactly, that will have what kind of constitution, that will have what kind of minority rights, that will have what kind of justice system. I used to think a one-state solution made things simpler. It makes things so much more complicated. We need to be fighting for a two-state solution. And to the extent that you're out there marching, saying from the river to the sea, you are impeding a two-state solution. You are hostile to Palestinian statehood. You're a rube. You're being played. I mean, I don't want to sound conspiratorial, but Iran and Hamas, they're not innocent actors here. They're not standing on the sidelines going, oh, this is interesting. I wonder what's happening. They are active in propagating a message. I'm not saying that you can't say that what Israel is doing in Gaza is barbaric. Just have some understanding of the context and have some proportionality in what you agitate for. Because you currently are on the same side as, for example, Bashar al-Assad in Syria who gave a speech the other day denouncing Israel and saying, how dare they do what they're doing in Gaza? I don't know if you know, but in October, Bashar al-Assad unleashed a wave of horror on the city of Idlib while everyone's attention was distracted by Gaza. And these are the same people, as I said, ethnically, culturally. I mean, you know, his country literally borders the West Bank. And here are two populations 
almost identical in culture and ethnicity, being pounded by bombs. Was there any evidence of what was happening to the people in Idlib on your social media feed? It was 10% of it about that? Was 5% of it about that? How much of your social media feed was about Pakistan? Why would it be about Pakistan, you say? Well, let me do the job which, amazingly, the algorithms at Meta, which were written by 22-year-old dudes skateboarding around Menlo Park in California, unbelievably, those algorithms which are tailored for the profit of the social media company did not deign to show you because they thought you'd be bored by it and you'd swipe past it, which you would have. They may not have shown you that Pakistan is currently evicting 1.1 million Muslims back into the horror of Taliban-ruled Afghanistan. These are refugees. These are people leading shitty lives already in Pakistan who will now lead even shittier lives in Afghanistan if they're not killed by the Taliban. Like how much of our attention should go to the Muslims who are being expropriated, bullied, demeaned, threatened, and killed in Central Asia versus the amount that we're allocating to Gaza? I don't know. But it strikes me as weird that it's 100% to Gaza. Don't be a sheep. Stop it. I'll just say two things to end with. One is, it may seem morally obvious that a ceasefire is at, we should at least agitate for. And I think that's probably true. I sometimes wonder whether Israel could have done something completely different. Thomas Friedman wrote shortly after October 7th, couldn't you do something like show that you're the humanitarian good guys by opening Gaza up, creating a huge open-air sort of mini-territory north of Gaza where all the women and children could go and the old people and anyone else who's a male of military age can try to prove that they're peaceful and if they want to be peaceful and give up their weapons and come over, they can come as well. And then you just leave the rest of uh, Gaza to Hamas and you wait them out. Maybe you flood the tunnels so they can't hide in the tunnels and you starve them out. When they get desperate enough, they can put their weapons down and they can come out and they can face justice in an Israeli court. I love that idea. Would have been a lot better PR-wise, wouldn't it? So, do I feel like Israel has blundered, like they're doing this the stupid way, the way that the United States did after 9-11? Yuval Noah Harari, the writer, has a great line, which is, a little bee cannot destroy a china shop full of Chinese vases, but a little bee can get inside the ear of a bull. And then the bull can destroy the china shop. For the bee. So Hamas and Al-Qaeda on 9-11 are the bee. And America and Israel are the bull. 
and the china shop is whoever is unfortunate enough to get in their way. And I certainly have sympathy, enormous sympathy, for everyone in Palestine. I have enormous sympathy for my friend in Beirut, who's a Palestinian stateless refugee. I don't have tremendous sympathy for people who cloak themselves in the Palestinian flag in Western countries to gain a moral high ground, to signal their virtue, to feel like they're on the right side of history. I mean, just remember, this is a point I've made before, but we have a laudable instinct in the West to trust our post-colonial guilt. You know, given the barbarism of colonization, we, we have a sort of heuristic running in the background, which is, you know, the, the poor shat-upon person of color is probably in the right, and the person with lighter skin who is dressed in a fancy suit and speaks good English and went to a Western university is probably the oppressor. You know, in this case, it just doesn't work that simply. It doesn't cleave off that way. Right now, in this instant, yes, you take a snapshot of the world. Obviously, the person in Gaza is being shat upon. Obviously, the person in Israel is better off. But wind the clock back a little, zoom out a little, see that there's this tiny minority of 16 million Jews surrounded by a world in which there are a billion Muslims, terrifyingly high numbers of which hate them, Alarmingly high numbers of non-Muslims also seem to not be that crazy about Jews once you scratch the surface in moments like this. And sure, you can say that might be partly Jewish paranoia, where we always think that everybody hates us. But when you see zero protests about the Pakistan eviction of Muslims, you see zero protests. I mean, how many times have you marched about what Bashar al-Assad is doing to Arabs and Muslims? Zero times? Or did you march once in 2012 when President Obama tried to uh, do something about the Syrian humanitarian crisis after Assad uh, used chemical weapons on his own people? Yeah, I mean, Yankee bombs are almost as bad as Jew bombs, according to social media. So that might have been one time when you marched in defense of the Syrians. But I'd be surprised if you have ever since. And this is not a game of whataboutism, of saying like, oh, we should absolve Israel because all of these other people are also doing bad things. It's about us. It's about us here in Australia, in America. It's about our cohesion as a society. It's about our feeling that we are a demos together, that we're creating a nation for ourselves, for all communities here, that's welcoming to everybody. It's about us being mindful of our own blind spots, of our own echo chambers, and just turning the volume down a little on exhibitions of moral piety that could be misconstrued by the people who we're trying to build this country with, who we're trying to live alongside. If the Palestinian flag means peace and justice and harmony for all to you, great. Don't fly the fucking thing. It doesn't mean that to everybody. It's about as stupid as the Americans marching into Baghdad and flying the American flag, thinking that the Iraqis are going to see that as freedom. They won't. They don't. It doesn't mean that to them. Semiotics matters. Symbolism matters. Words matter. From the river to the sea, that might mean something delightful to you. It's not, it doesn't sound delightful to everybody. It sounds no more delightful to most Jews than when an Israeli right-winger says, from the river to the sea, Israel will control all of Palestinian territory sounds to a Palestinian. 
It sounds fucking hostile. So go on, go on to social media and continue chanting, continue marching, hold up the banners by any means necessary from the river to the sea. Go on, enlighten me about how bad bombing babies is. I await your next scintillating, eye-opening post about this moral calculus that I've somehow missed, as if the number of body bags is the only way for determining morality. You know, at the risk of unpacking a hoary and uninventive cliché and breaching Godwin's law, I should say, as I've said, I don't support the way that Israel has responded to this. I'm not sure what other options there are. I'm sure there are more humanitarian, there were more humanitarian options. However, the end game has to be that jihadists don't rule territory neighboring Israel. So whatever they do, it wasn't possible to do it in a half-baked way and then have jihadists come back to power. <clears throat> Excuse me. However, I would just say that even though I'm extremely uncomfortable with the amount of carnage that's going on in Gaza, I would also say that that is not prima facie evidence that Israel is in the wrong and that the Gazans are in the right. I mean, of course, it depends who you're talking about. I remember one Israeli general said, it's not us against them. It's some of us and some of them against some of them and some of us. So, you know, we have to be talking in ways that create the largest amount of overlap in the Venn diagrams between the thems and the us's. And a call to action from Creatives for Palestine petition does the exact opposite. Posting in unnuanced ways about fucking Zionists being baby killers and having their whiteness, wearing their whiteness on their sleeve and talking about their bloody exceptionalism all the time does not enhance the prospect of finding common ground between Arabs and Jews. And going back to Godwin's law, we don't decide the morality of World War II by counting up the number of babies who were killed in the firebombing of Dresden or the incineration of Nagasaki and putting that on a tally and comparing it to the number of babies on, killed by the other side. You know, there are bigger forces at play. The, the the moral victory should not just go to whoever manages to make life as shitty as possible for their own civilians and get as many of them killed. Because, I mean, sometimes that actually is the strategy. If you're living under a shitty jihadist dictatorship, as the poor people in Gaza have been, then your government, Hamas, is literally in the game of making your life shitty and endangering your life and putting you in harm's way and placing you between Israeli rockets and them. So it's a weird moral inversion to think that it's a sort of easy moral calculus to just see the baby being pulled out of the rubble and go, I can't believe that Josh isn't saying something against this and writing letters to the foreign minister. Well, maybe the foreign minister knows more than you do about the complexity of the situation. Shut up and go back to posting about toothpaste. A final thing that came to my attention was an article that was being favourably quoted by one of Australia's most prominent uh, newsreaders and journalists. She's retired now, but uh, it was her Twitter feed that brought it to my attention. 
It's an article in Mondo Weiss, which is news and opinion about Palestine, Israel, and the United States, called Tearing Down the Wall. And it's ostensibly a review of a new movie, which I haven't seen yet, called The Zone of Interest, about a family of Nazis who are living right against the walls of Auschwitz. And the journalist says, the thought, of course, set in motion an obvious but taboo moral question in my mind about one of the most pressing matters of our time. And this is the quote that the Australian journalist reposted. Is it understandable why people in Gaza, similarly trapped behind a wall in a concentration camp and experiencing genocide, would kill or take hostage people they found partying on the other side of the wall, holding the men? And then the writer turns their attention to the question of whether or not the people at the, at the rave in southern Israel who were mutilated and hunted by jihadists were actually blameless. The writer says, despite not being active duty soldiers on that day, the ravers at the Nova Music Festival were hardly people living outside of politics who were partying on neutral land. They were dancing on the site of Ray's villages, partying about three miles from the apartheid wall and enclosing forcibly removed Palestinians in the world's largest prison. For the revelers who were Israeli citizens, their right to party with an expectation of peace where they were dancing cannot be separated from the necro-political power the Israeli state holds over everyone in Gaza and the West Bank not being in those spaces. I find that strangely sort of compelling in an intuitive way, at the same time as I find it macabre. It is the logic of Osama bin Laden, or of the terrorist, basically, that like there is no such thing as a civilian because we are all beneficiaries. I mean, the people in the Twin Towers were people who worked in finance. They were implicated in the American, in the system of American capitalism. They voted for leaders in a democracy who enacted uh, all of the horrors that Osama bin Laden believes lay at the, lie at the feet of American foreign policy from its alliance with Saudi Arabia to its invasion of foreign lands and the, the despoiling of holy sites by stationing infidel peacekeepers in the holy lands and so on. So, like, there's a kind of a network of complicity that you can always rationalize to justify terrorism. But there's something deeply morally confused about the analogy with Auschwitz. Like, let's, let's try to imagine a history in which that analogy makes sense. So, for a start, the Jews of Europe in the 1930s had been trying to drive the Germans into the sea ever since Germany was founded. The Jews ran all the countries surrounding Germany and outnumbered Germans 50-fold. And the Jews in Europe in the 30s were committed to the annihilation of the German state. And they'd tried to pull that off repeatedly by invading Germany from the crowded seaside enclave where they lived. Let's call it Jewtown. And the Germans had pursued various peace processes. They'd offered the Jews a state several times. The offers weren't very good, so the Jews hadn't taken it. But the Jews had never counter-offered. And many Jewish leaders were quite openly committed to wiping the Germans out of the region and taking over Germany. And they said so. They said that they wanted the Jews to be free from the river to the sea, from the Rhine to the Baltic. 
And when the Germans withdrew from Jewtown, the seaside enclave, and the Jews elected a radical terrorist group to power, let's call the group Hummus, and the Germans reacted to the rise of Hummus, the radical terrorists, by blockading Jewtown, the seaside enclave, and building an Iron Dome missile defence system to defend innocent Germans from constant Jewish rocket attacks, although of course the Germans weren't entirely innocent, as we just read. And then when the peace process fell apart and the Jews living under Hummus found themselves victims of their own overreach and stuck in squalid refugee camps, oppressed, what choice did they have but to escape this self-administered autonomous Jewish territory which the Jews had elected terrorists to run called Auschwitz? And so then they had to attack an outdoor German uh, Youthen Deutsche Danzen Boom Boom Party. And who can blame? Who can blame the Jews for raping and slaughtering and beheading and mutilating and kidnapping hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of German civilians in a frenzied, fanatical, delusional, religious fever dream? I mean, wouldn't you do just the same if you were imprisoned in a fatuous analogy, remarkable for its historical ignorance and moral confusion. I mean, I know I would try to break out. Let's all try to break out of such stupid comparisons altogether, shall we? Whether we are a retired journalist, a creative who signed the call to action from Creatives for Palestine, a Jewish Zionist who wants no talk of a Palestinian state, or just a passerby who is watching this madness and division unfold on social media. So to my friends and colleagues who ask why I'm not posting about Gaza and marching for Gaza and signing the call to action for Palestine, it's not because I don't care about Palestinians. I do care about Palestinians. Palestinians have been backed into a corner and betrayed by Israel and Lebanon and Jordan and Syria and Egypt and their own leaders, and especially by Hamas. I am sceptical that their long-term interests are served by jumping onto social media social justice bandwagons when they erupt on Instagram. And I am certain that doing so in this case jumping on this bandwagon, signing petitions, feeling self-righteous, posting about it every day on Instagram, chanting, 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 sows division, makes a long-term peace less likely, betrays the Palestinian people as well as Jews, empowers theocrats in Tehran, empowers tyrants in Arab countries, empowers skinheads in the West, empowers jihadists across the world, jihadists whose number one victim is Muslims, and undermines us as a society. So enjoy your anti-Israel protest marches. I look forward to your next scintillating Instagram story about how heartbroken you are by Zionist evils in Gaza. So nuanced, so brave. See you next time. Peace.